Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor. Featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. Our compatriot Matt will be rejoining us in the future. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. In a way, today's episode, well, it's for all of us as always, but it is also for a specific person, a person who is a hero to some Uh, an international criminal, a Bond-level criminal to others, and a person who is still very much free, still very much alive. Uh, We've talked about about some nuke stuff in in the recent past. Nuclear weapons are so incredibly dangerous, and if you think about it, yes, human beings have created other kinds of technology that could eventually end life as we know it, right? Like uh, fossil fuel technology is terrible for the environment, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the uh, the problem with nukes is that nuclear technology has the highest possibility of ending life as we know it in the shortest amount of time. Right. right? I mean, you know, we, we, we it's it's easy to kick the can down the road when it comes to like uh, destroying the environment. You know, if you're doing it like death by a thousand cuts style, right? But like a nuke, a nuclear incident, a nuclear catastrophe, often uh, you know the word holocaust is attached to it. We see what that's like, you know, in science fiction and like Mad Max type scenarios and uh, anime, for example, things like Akira. But yeah, it's uh, mutually assured destruction. Yes. And I'm very glad you brought that up at the top, Noel. Yeah. Mutually assured destruction is this belief in international affairs that if two countries have uh, nukes or have a certain threshold of nuclear weapons, they'll be much less likely to use them. So mm-hmm. the idea, it's weird. The, the idea is almost to very much oversimplify it. The old school idea of MAD was that the more countries that have nukes, the safer overall the world is from nuclear annihilation, which is pretty crazy. And you can see that policymakers don't believe that's true. Clearly, clearly not. I mean, it's such a counterintuitive thing to think that like the more of this absolutely deadly, uh, uh, dangerous thing that exists, the safer we are. That just is completely counterintuitive just to like normal logic. But it makes sense from like a geopolitical standpoint, because the concept of mutually assured destruction is that if we launch at you and you know that we're doing it, you're going to launch a counterstrike against us. And then we're both, f-ed. excuse my French. Uh, yeah, well, the, the French come into play here, or at least yes. the French language. Mutually assured destruction is often credited with preventing the Cold War from turning hot. Uh, but, you know, there are other people say this is this is a really dumb idea. Should we bet the global farm on it? But the idea is like, you know, if you fire something, you know, the instant retaliation, it's not going to stop your border. It could be, you know, the end of huge swaths of civilization. Yeah, you would think twice. That part is logical. But pretty much since the discovery of nuclear weapons of this technology, millions of people, dozens of huge institutions, nonprofits, other countries, you name it, have all begged the human species to step back from the precipice. That's where we get to today's question. If all of this is true, which it is, how did we end up with so many nukes? How did we proliferate this world-ending technology? Why do so many countries have them today? Because it's probably more than you think. Here are the facts. It is certainly more than I thought. Uh, Not going to lie. Multiple countries currently have access to nuclear weapons. And understandably, based on the conversation we're about to have today, many, many more countries want a seat at that uh, nuke table. Um, Nine countries currently have these things. The United States, United Kingdom, France, there they are, Israel, uh, unofficially, um, Pakistan, Russia, India, China, and North Korea. Um, And in that group, again, back to that Cold War uh, scenario, the United States and Russia have by far the most. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's still the big dogs in the game. Um, But we have to remember that each one of those other seven countries has tremendously dangerous capabilities here, and it affects a ton of their interactions in the global sphere. Uh, We were talking with our super producer, 
Paul Mission Control Deccant about this before we went on the air. And it's something I think we can all acknowledge. Countries with nuclear capability in this manner simply get treated differently. And that's part of the reason that so many countries that don't have nukes want them. And there's so many countries that do have nukes that kind of control the the current world order are going to fight tooth and nail to prevent other people from having access to that technology. For some of us uh, in the crowd today, that might be the right and necessary thing, right? It's a moral good. But for other folks, it's um, an imperialistic mechanism of controlling people in, in just a new way that you couldn't do before. And every year, every single year, various groups call for what's what's known as global nuclear disarmament. Let us take our radioactive swords and turn them into plowshares. And every year, uh, not not much happens in this regard. I mean, the global arsenal is on decline. But, you know, we're cinephiles here. This reminds me of that trope in so many action movies where there are two people and they have a gun. They have guns. They each have a gun. They're pointed at each other. And one of them saying, all right, put it down. And the other one's like, no, you put your gun down first. Then I'll put mine down. That's the situation we're in on a global scale. Like, what would you do? What would you do if Russia said, I will get rid of all the nuclear weapons in our arsenal? We, we will legally agree to do this as long as every other country goes first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of like that story. We, we talked about this in an episode of Ridiculous History recently of the history of the expression eating crow. And I'm not fully uh, remembering all the details, but it had to do with an encounter between a British soldier and a, an American soldier. And the uh, British soldier, I believe, took the American soldier's gun from him, or he kind of gave it to him for some dumb reason. Like he needed, it was, it wasn't working or so I can't quite remember. Point is he took it from him. He held it on him and he forced him to eat uh, a dead crow carcass that he had just killed with said gun. Um, again, I'm getting the details a little hazy. Then of course the, he gives it back to him, which seemed crazy to me. And then what happens? The American soldier holds the gun on the British soldier and makes him eat a piece of that crow, too. Uh, that's just how people are. And governments often mimic the worst and basest instincts of people <laughs> on a grand scale. Yeah, the, the big assumption of international affairs is that the state is a rational actor. But being rational does not necessarily imply anything about morality or being good, right? It's just what seems to be the most reasonable cost benefit at the time. And that's where we're at. You know, uh, we want to be careful in this episode not to seem like we are overly propagandizing for the U.S. or for another country in particular. The, this, this is the issue. These are world enders. They could also uh, potentially be very clean technology. Uh, when it works safely. And so since the end of the second war, every single major country has considered pursuing nukes to one degree or another. Some of them never got past that idea, that discussion in a boardroom. And they signed stuff like the uh, MPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But if you go back, if you go back to um, the 40s, you can see some pretty amazing and disturbing stories about how the so-called allies raced against one another to get the bomb. I mean, these, these, these folks were aware that Germany had a, an atomic or nuclear program during World War II. 
it's just very lucky for history that the Nazis weren't successful. And as soon as the Nazi party fell, everybody, the Soviet Union, the U.S., the U.K., France, uh, it was no longer one for all, all for one. They mm. were snatching people. Totally. But this is, a, this is a very speculative history question. If the Nazis would have won and gotten a hold of nuclear weapons, let's just say in like an alternate timeline, do you think they would have like nuked whole swaths of the world that they were unhappy with to start from scratch and rebuild like in their own image? I think it's quite possible. Um, they were very resource poor for uh, a lot of the war, which is, you know, I think one of the things powering some of their strategies. But they would have been kind of in the situation that the U.S. was in post-World War II when they were doing those experiments on the Marshall Islands. They would have been saying, let's test this amidst more isolated or vulnerable people. So I think if they saw some, if they saw an area with people that they didn't consider human and that also didn't have resources they wanted, like good farmland or mm -hmm. something like that, they would bomb them. But then also, um, and this is entirely speculative history, uh, but if, if Adolf Hitler's administration had had nuclear capability, they absolutely would have used it. I'm no certain question. they would have as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you're right. Like, it is a philosophical conversation in that respect, right? Like, do you play by the rules if even if only the rules are, well, I'm not going to blow you up because then you'll blow me up. Um, but there is some kind of moral core at work here, it seems, you know, I mean, but it's also like largely a, out of self-preservation. It's, it's interesting. But, but I guess what we're getting into today is this moral idea of we have them and we deserve them, but you shouldn't have them. You don't deserve them, whether because you – know, and that's not what's said, obviously, but that is the implication, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a question that becomes um, a little bit complicated, a little more quickly than you might think. We know that in our thread of the multiverse, in our timeline, in our version of reality, the U.S. did emerge the victor from this race. There, there were other – like we all know about Operation Paperclip where the U.S. spirited away German scientists. Um, there was a Soviet equivalent called Operation Osovakum, uh, which is essentially their paperclip or also Russian Alsos, the Soviet Alsos, uh, which was a, our code name for that operation in the West. They were stealing these people because they were stealing their expertise. So the Soviet and U.S. nuclear weapons programs – and the U.S. rocketry program are built off uh, Nazi science. They're built off uh, – at least those researchers were being supported by the Nazi government at the time. But the U.S. won the race, that part of it. And if the government of the U.S. at that time had its way, just like you were saying, Noel, the U.S. would still be the world's only nuclear power today because they're saying, you know – because, again, the analogy is uh, something like, well, even if I don't want guns, if I'm in a room with, you know, 190-something other people and there's one gun, I want to be the person who has it. Sure. 
which is understandable from like a just a you know logical perspective in terms of like protecting our borders and protecting our citizens and all that. But then it gets much more muddy. Not to mention the fact that the reason that the USSR has nuclear capabilities is because they were spying on the U.S. Manhattan Project. You know when that was uh, underway, um, which is you know literally what what led to the development of the atomic bomb in the United States. Um, so the USSR wouldn't have had that if they hadn't have been spying on us in the first place. Um, and then some of the United Kingdom's earlier work collaborating with the U.S., you know, during their times as allies, or obviously still allies, but working more closely in an active war effort, uh, it got to a point where the U.S., started being very cautious about what information was uh, available, what was what they left on the table, you know, so to speak, for anyone to see. Right, right. Uh, your, your roommate at the lab is getting real cagey now about what they're working on and uh, what they have discovered uh, because there's no longer that common purpose of World War II uniting them. And ultimately – Many of the countries who are amidst the nine nuclear ring wraiths we just named got where they got by relentlessly spying on each other, ruthlessly breaking international norms, stealing absolutely whatever they could, setting up, get this, clandestine networks, which is going to be somewhat ironic later in this episode. What are we talking about? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsors. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. 
but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. We've returned. To a lot of casual observers, there's this kind of weird dichotomy in the world of nuclear weapons. Some of the countries, if you just look at the list, that have nuclear weapons or were close to attaining those in the past, like Libya, were often considered enemies of the West. These would be countries like uh, Iran's nuclear capabilities or Pakistan or, or, or North Korea. And uh, to be clear, Iran does not, as far as we know, have nuclear weaponry. But the guess is that they're working on it despite their statements. So how did, how did these countries, which are not particularly wealthy, manage to succeed where so many other countries failed? Uh, it turns out, folks, that the world of nuclear weapons has a literal black market, and it's one that's on the danger of booming. Here's where it gets crazy. Yeah, it does sound like something out of a Bond film. Uh, you, you may, I, it may have been in a Bond film. If not a Bond film, definitely things like Clear and Present Danger, sure, or a, yeah. lo a lot of these like J Tom Clancy type, uh, you know, speculative kind of like uh, fiction, you know, based around history and geopolitics and all of that. Right? Um, certainly, seeing the shady, you know, plutonium deals going down, even in like Back to the Future. Right? Remember how Doc Brown? Uh, spoiler alert for Back to the Future gets killed by these terrorists, quote unquote, who he either stole the plutonium from or bought it from. And the deal went wrong. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely a thing. You hear about people trying to buy enriched uranium on the black market and stuff. And you think, OK, maybe that's based in some grain of reality, but you don't really think of it as being a huge you know, specter looming over everything uh, every day. But it turns out it very much is, and it's based on a very real thing. Uh, and, and this market, this black market you speak of, um, could very well be in danger of getting worse. And it all goes back to this one very, very, very successful uh, scientist and black market nuclear operative by the name of A.Q. Khan. Oh, man, yes, this is true. Uh, a lot of times uh, in the course of reporting the news, media outlets will just latch onto one person as an example of a larger systemic issue, right? Because it humanizes it, it simplifies it, it makes it easier to understand. That's usually inaccurate, but in this case, it is very true. It, it goes down to one guy. His name is Abdul Qadir Khan, and he didn't start out as what some people would call an international science criminal. Today, the man known as the father of Pakistan's nuclear bomb, uh, you know, it might surprise some of his fans to, to know that he started out as a pretty, a pretty smart but bookish nuclear physicist, metallurgist, 
Uh, he was born in India in 1935, but he relocated to Pakistan in 1951. And part of the reason that he relocated had to be at least politically motivated because his older siblings and some members of his family had moved to Pakistan during the partition of India in 1947 when Pakistan was split off into an independent state. And they would write to Khan and his folks about how they had these new, better lives there. So he was becoming a nationalist in a way for Pakistan. So it made sense that he moved there. Uh, and he was a smart guy. He was a smart guy and he became a globetrotter just on the basis of his uh, intellect. He was a brilliant student. Yes. Khan was born in India in 1935, but moved to Pakistan in 1951. And he eventually got a very illustrious scholarship where he was um, paid to study abroad in West Germany. Uh, and that led to him moving to the Netherlands, which is what led him to working for an engineering firm in Amsterdam, where he developed a very specific set of skills. So the, the company he worked for it's pretty important. Uh, it was called the Physics Dynamics Research Laboratory. And that in itself is, you know, it's a solid gig. It's good work if you can get it, but sure. it's not It's not our smoking gun here. Uh, the, the connection is that this laboratory was a subcontractor for something with the unfortunate name of the Urenco Group. <laughs> yeah. Do they make fake pee for like passing <laughs> urine screens? Maybe. They, they, they seem to do several things. One of the things they did was uh, operate a new uh, uranium enrichment plant. And so Khan is kind of like a nuclear physicist version of Drake. But for real, right. he started from the bottom and so he's worked his way up. And now because his colleagues and his bosses and his professors speak so highly of him, uh, he is seen as a, a total non-security risk, right? Let's see how the radioactive sausage is made. He learns uh, and, and acquires knowledge of the spe specific steps needed to enrich radioactive material to weapon-grade states. Uh, and we know this because the techniques that he has expanded upon are very specifically things that he would have picked up during this time period. So it's, um, it's kind of like, you know how when you say, it's not even this subtle really, but you know how you, you're listening to a musician and you say, oh, I can hear influences of this earlier musician. You know that's one of my favorite things in the world, Ben, uh, as, a, as a giant music nerd. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, you know, and cer certain uh, musicians, you know, don't want to wear those influences like on their sleeve. Um, they might be a little more subtle about it, but, uh, you know, enriching uranium is a pretty specific influence. It's really hard. It's hard to be subtle about it, right? Right, and the uh, P1 centrifuge is a pretty, pretty specific piece of equipment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, so good on good on Khan at least for not saying I totally made that up myself. Right, but but so this is the thing. At this point, no matter what you think about the person, uh, he's he's just he's another physicist, and he's a smart researcher. He's good at his job. He has a lot of insight. Um, and yet he may have some very nationalistic feelings for his adopted home country. But a lot of people have stuff like that. You know what I mean? It, just because somebody is uh, very patriotic, you can say, 
doesn't need to affect their day job. And he might have just continued his career as a researcher in Europe for a long time. But there was one thing, there was an event that changed his life in 1974. He learned about something. Yeah, it's what you might consider like the twist or the pivot in the story, right? Uh, in May of 1974, he learned about a secret nuclear program that was being carried out in India um, and their surprise nuclear test known as Smiling Buddha. What a great name. It's good. It's very good. I almost, we were talking about Bond villains and I was, this, the Smiling Buddha, kind of like the, what was that? The, the Manchurian? No, the Mandarin, you know, in in uh, mm-hmm. in Marvel. Uh, the, the Marvel world. I think the Smiling Buddha is pretty good because it's like it's on the one hand sort of innocuous, like names for these types of programs often try to be. But I also find it kind of creepy. Oh, it's very creepy. The government of India, when they admitted this, this surprise nuclear test, uh, they verbatim described it as a peaceful nuclear explosion. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, peaceful in that everyone's dead afterwards. There's nothing more peaceful than, you know, complete annihilation. The Buddha was smiling. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, I, you know, we know that other countries were picking up on signals about this. Uh, but like back in the 1960s, India's government had contacted Westinghouse Electric. And he said, hey, build our first nuclear power plant here. So, of course, Uncle Sam is going to know about that. A spoiler alert, not to be too fingers on the hand about connections, but uh, yeah, Westinghouse, uh, at least its leaders, are chummy with the U.S. And I'm sure that they have each other's phone numbers and have all kinds of off-the-record conversations. They hang. Their sisters were best friends and, you know, growing up and stuff. Right, right. They both went to Chotenail, which is a prep school I made up. Hopefully. I love it. It's a horrible name for a prep no, school. It's, it, it, it really, it reads. Uh, <laughs> you said that, and I immediately knew what you were talking about. <laughs> Thank you. So when he learned of Smiling Buddha, of this surprise nuclear test, uh, this set him upon the path he currently travels. Noel, did you ever see the television show Fringe? Yeah, for sure. I definitely didn't like watch every single episode, but I followed it pretty regularly up front and then I think I fell off once it got into a little bit more of the timey-wimey stuff. I kind of got a little confused and stopped watching it. But that's probably on me. I, and there's some really great things in it. Uh, very X-Files-y. Quite, quite enjoyed the show. Yeah, I agree with you on all points there. I've, I've complained about this in the past. I hope it's not unwarranted. But I'm one of those people who gets uh, irritated, bored, disinterested when I see a story descend into television rules or soap mm-hmm. opera rules where they'll say, oh, you know what this really was? We're secretly related or we're destined to be in love. Or this explains so much because you're actually my brother. Blah, oh, blah, no. Blah. Yeah. It's like not everybody needs to be in one family because the, that's. Uh, anyway, well, this is say, not, it's a, not, not just to have our little pop culture gripe corner for a second. It's sure. kind of the same thing that happened with X-Files, whereas I know there are people on varying sides of this, but like, I like that show best when it was a monster of the week episodic situation. Uh, and then they tried a little too hard to grow the red thread of that universe. And to me, that's when it got a little much. That's how I felt about Fringe too. But I know that you and Matt uh, do enjoy some of the larger X-Files world, you know, uh, 
storylines. Sure, I dig it, but I feel you. Like, it's not a good story does not ultimately have to be the story of a member of a family dying or a member of a family being born. Or abducted or, by aliens. <laughs> right, right, right. We're repeatedly abducted yeah, by aliens right. in the very definition of a tease. But Chekhov's gun aside, uh, we we know that for critics of AQ Khan, I'm trying to be very fair here, he is kind of like a fringe monster of the week, but has been for decades. Um, Fringe's monster of the week episodes often concerned they're pretty often concerned evil scientists, scientists who had used the power of um, their intelligence and their design ability to create things for nefarious or misdirected purposes. You know what I mean? Like somebody builds a time machine that he has to embed in his body to travel back in time and try to save his wife from a car mm. accident. Right. Right. There's always that trigger moment that like sets them on a path of either righteousness or, you know, revenge against everyone that wronged them. Right. Exactly. And so that's what happened with A.Q. Khan. And we can dive into his career, but it gets it gets complicated really quickly. So what we can say is that he began making connections. He began he was the number it was one of the number one drivers of Pakistan's nuclear program. He didn't get along with everybody. There were a lot of ins and outs, but he is a huge reason that Pakistan's a nuclear armed country today. And it's, you know, it's, if you think about it, uh, given the incredible, the incredibly tense relationship between Pakistan and India, uh, it's no surprise that he as a Pakistani man could have seen a nuclear powered India as an existential threat. So he probably saw him, he probably sees himself because he's still alive uh, as someone doing a right, just and noble thing. But to agencies like the IEAE, uh, which monitors nuclear proliferation, this guy is cr a criminal. He's public enemy number one. And by 1979, suspicions of his role in illegal nuclear proliferation reached a fever pitch and the, his old country that he lived in during college investigated him. It, it's really interesting, Ben. We talked about this at the top of the show. And I just wanted to point this out here. I mean, you know, Pakistan has a GDP of 278 billion U.S. dollars, or at least in 2019 it did. And Iran has a GDP uh, or had of, of almost $600 billion. Um, and it's just, it, when we were talking about that list at the top of the show, and, and this is no disparagement on any country or saying that like, you're only worth something if you're worth a lot of money, but in terms of like the idea of a developed nation and that being the credentials required to have these kinds of weapons or something or to come by it in terms of like having all this cash to go into development. It seemed like Pakistan was low on that list and uh, compared to some of the other countries. Um, and this is why, <laughs> because it turns out that it was not a natural progression of technological investment that led to this. It was a very specific intervention by a very specific dude. Yeah. Yeah, who clearly is motivated by the belief that he is doing what he sees as the right thing. And I, I love the point you're bringing up there about GDP because it's going to lead to our, our other conversation, which is who gets to say 
who gets to say who deserves the thing, right, or who has a right to this? The Dutch government launched an investigation into Khan for nuclear espionage. And the problem is that they couldn't find anything that felt like really strong, inarguable proof. So they dismissed it due to a lack of evidence. But later, in a in a local court, he's found guilty in 1985. This is another Dutch court. And he's sentenced in absentia to four years in prison. But he sues them. And he says, like, the most baller physics nerd thing you could say. He says, look, any information that I may have shared with anyone, I'm not admitting that I did anything wrong, whatever I might have shared with whomever is freely available to people who are, you know, maybe unlike you, smart enough to know what they're looking for. And they'll just read the magazines that are publicly available or the trade journals or the lectures in undergraduate halls across your country. So he was <laughs> he pretty much uh, – he pled not guilty and strongly implied that the people accusing him were idiots, which I thought was a baller move. It absolutely is a baller move. Um and, you know, you, we, we, we alluded at the top of the show to the fact that this guy in Pakistan is absolutely revered, uh, perhaps in the rest of the international community, um, reviled, right? Um, but there's this really great article, if you want to read up some more on, on some of the minutiae of this story and these very com complicated relationships in the Atlantic uh, that has the fabulous name of The Wrath of Khan. Um, and, and they specifically talk about how he is essentially looked at as like a demigod um, in in the country, in, in Pakistan, second only to the founder of the nation of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And uh, apparently the guy's a bit of a pill, uh, like you said. I mean, you could imagine, like he's, <laughs> he seems to take matters into his own hands. But uh, the article, the Atlantic article talks about how he has developed quite the ego um, and, uh, you know, flexes this demigod status uh, pretty regularly. Yeah, and it's not as if he isn't the father of Pakistan's nuclear weaponry. There are multiple articles. I saw another one also from The Atlantic called The Point of No Return that is about the adulation, uh, specifically the adoration. And there were people who um, knew the guy before he started this network uh, who had a different take on him. And interestingly, one person, former uh, school chum, said that Khan seemed to behave like an addict of sorts as he was starting this network, that he wasn't able to get – it's like a scientist looking for that rush of validation and realization, and he wasn't able to get it from his activities when he returned to Pakistan. And that's why he went rogue. Well, that's the phrase they use because the big – one of the big arguments about this is whether or not the government of Pakistan knew about the proliferation network and helped him out for a cut. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, or whether he was doing this for money or for something ideological. We're going to pause for a word from our sponsor and we'll be back to talk a little bit about the network a little bit about his possible motivations, and then perhaps most importantly, the bigger philosophical picture. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know. 
taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. (laughs) I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. So, uh, we're back. Noel, this is one thing um, we, sh- we should probably clarify. When we say nuclear proliferation network, we're not just talking about somebody shipping over fully armed, fitted out, kitted out, nuclear warheads were like, this could be as small as PDFs of a design. Here's how you make this centrifuge. Yeah, that's right. And and that's largely what, uh, what Khan stole and, and provided was designs, right? That he had kind of, uh, you know, squirreled away from his time working around that centrifuge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these were also designs that he had improved upon himself. Like one example so what, one example would be Iraq. Um, before the Gulf War, uh, there, was a, there was a high likelihood that Khan and his network were going to help make Iraq a nuclear-powered nation or nuclear-capable nation. And then the war in the Middle East or that version of it would have gone very differently. But the Gulf War occurred before they could really get to work on this. And 
the kind of things that he supplied that were found after the fall of the government were things like very specific, very necessary things like um, here is how you mold uranium into the specific sphere you'll need for the thing you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the, the kind of detail that a lot of people – you wouldn't recognize the importance of that if you were shifting through a bunch of papers, right? You'd almost have to be a physicist, wouldn't you? Oh, of course. And my question, too, about all this, Ben, and forgive me if this is uh, obvious, but it's my understanding that, you know, even with Iran now, for example, we know they have nuclear power. It's all about uh, refining it and enriching their uranium to a point where it can be used as a nuclear weapon. And that technology supposedly they're not quite there yet. So is that literally what he was providing with the improvements to the centrifuge is how to be able to enrich this product to a weaponized state? Yeah, he was selling the ability. He was selling the pieces and the abilities to make nuclear weapons, not just have nuclear power. And the difference really is is a matter of degree of rinse and repeat and the materials used. So it's it's dual use technology, which is difficult uh, for international observers. Iran can have the same any country, really, absolutely any country can have uh, types of centrifuges and a material that they're enriching up to a certain amount, and that's totally that's it. That's nuclear power. That's what it's supposed to do. But then, if you do the same thing past a certain threshold, then you get into the idea of making weapons grade materials. And really, you know, the the big difference between quote unquote nuclear power and quote unquote a nuclear weapon is that in a nuclear reactor, the energy is generated over some period of time, weeks, months, years. And these fission fragments are building up the whole time the reactor's working. But in a nuclear weapon, all of it comes out at once. That's the that's the difference. It's just right. the same thing delivered a different way. Like when you get a quesadilla instead of a burrito. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but people but the thing is, you know, people die in the burrito situation here. I don't know why I chose the burrito as the bomb, man. I'm sorry. I'm just not Well, we all know how you feel. We all, yeah. we all know you're much more pro quesadilla than I don't, I never thought of you as anti-burrito until this moment, Ben. I'm gonna have to, <laughs> they yeah. cannot proliferate, no. Yeah, apparently not. But proliferate they did. Uh you know, the uh, the real world burritos in this case, which is nuclear weapons, directly because of the influence of this man um and this network that he uh kind of established, right? Yeah, for over 20 years, this underground nuclear conspiracy, this nuclear ring operated out of more than a dozen countries. It's weird because international observers say that somewhere along the line, the network flipped. Like it started when he was back in Pakistan and he was getting supplies he needed from other countries. So it it started as an import network. And then Pakistan uh, successfully launched their nuclear weapons program. But it didn't stop for Khan. It evolved into an export network. So this is where, like you were saying, Noel, this is where they start exporting stuff to Iran, to Libya, to North Korea. And uh, those three cases, by the way, are solidly proven, not conspiracy theories. It's how the nukes got there. That is why they were there today, except in the case of Libya, uh, when Muammar Gaddafi agreed to step back from his nuclear program and was rewarded with the fall of his regime. And while we're doing an info dump, I guess I'll just say it. For anybody who's wondering why 
uh, the Gaddafi regime was finally brought down when it was brought down. Part of it was that they would not have a nuclear deterrent, but the bigger part, the big motivation was France, which wanted to control the currency at the time. Gaddafi was moving away to an African dinar, kind of like an African euro, and uh, France didn't want it because they controlled the franc that was used in that area. But Ben, I have to ask, if Khan's network was supplying, uh, you know, stuff uh, to Iran and Libya, why don't they have nukes? Well, yeah, Libya walked back their program through international agreement. Uh, and Iran is like the one of the number one worries for the West and Israel. So Iran has more eyes on them and more punishments through the forms of sanctions and stuff. They have nuclear capability, but also if you ask the government of Iran, they would say they don't want nuclear weapons. Right. But but I guess, yeah, no, that's that's a really good point in terms of like the optics of it all. But yeah, it, that's it, what it, they say. It, it is clear, though, to me that Pakistan was Khan's major concern. He literally wanted to save the country because they had lost so many wars, you know, against India, for example, or conflicts. And they felt he felt that they were like under the thumb of this other country. And he wanted to bring them up and lift them up out of that and give them a seat at the table. And that's why he's revered there, because he's he's looked at as like a savior type figure. Yeah, exactly. Nailed it. So suppliers, contractors for the network came from countries all across Europe. There were subcontractors in Malaysia. Uh, the big question for international observers is, was this in fact a private network run by private entities uh, with one guy, Khan, having connections with a state level entity, that being the country of Pakistan, or was the government of Pakistan actively assisting him? Because some of the flights, some of the equipment flights that have been traced happened on planes owned by the government of Pakistan. So I feel like facets or factions of the um, of the government were at least assisting him, even without even if without the government's overall knowledge. And then there's one other thing that we should mention. Uh, we're not in any way saying stuff that is untrue to Khan's reputation, and we're not leveling accusations at him because he publicly admitted that he has done this multiple times. And this is scary to a lot of people who like the current nuclear world order because it means, first, you can do this and get away. Khan is 85 years old as we record. He is a free man. Many people have, uh, affiliated with this network never saw a day in jail or never saw a year in jail at least. And they're fine. In many cases, they're not just free. They're very wealthy. Uh, secondly, it looks like some of these regulatory bodies can be powerless. Thirdly, there don't seem to be a lot of smart controls. But I would say, no. most importantly, that's something you and Paul and I were talking about before we rolled. Who gets to decide, right? Who, who has – There we know there is no like ancient right to decide because nuclear weaponry didn't exist until very recently. So who gets to be the like master of the toys here? Well, uh, whoever's got the most of them, I would assume. Uh, uh, you know who who holds the keys to the kingdom of, of nuclear weaponry, and I mean, I think the United States would fancy it as uh, that being us, uh, and certainly flexes that muscle plenty in the form of sanctions and the form of trying to, you know, international agreements or kind of leading the charge in these conversations. Um, but hell, we're not going to dismantle our nukes. Are you kidding? 
You stay away from our nukes. We're the we're the good guys. Have you seen our our, our hats? We're all in Uncle Sam costumes right. at this point. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, and it's a good point because it, it, look, all countries, in some shape or form, except maybe like Sweden, and I, I take that back, have some level of corruption. You know, whether they're corrupt to the core, you know, that's all a matter of debate, you know. But I think we all know, like we said, governments and uh, governing bodies being sort of the like, you know, organizational personification of the dark heart of man. Right. Uh, It's sort of unavoidable that there's going to be some rot in these in these countries. And there certainly is the United States. I think we maybe have a little more faith in our processes or whatever that maybe we, you know, we we have some restraint and we're like some kind of bellwether of the economy, whatever. All that stuff is, again, totally up for debate. But I think we would argue that there are countries that should not have this stuff because they are corrupt to the core. Right. Yeah. And then there are questions, too, about guiding ideologies. So one of the things that got uh, hammered into my head by, by some professors was that certain countries could never have nuclear weapons because they were considered theocracies. And one of the big things they would say, like one example, I'm not going to name names here, but one of the examples that, that I heard pretty frequently was somebody saying, look, you don't want Saudi Arabia having a nuclear bomb because it is a kingdom that is governed by a very specific uh, type of Islam. And they were saying, you know, the belief in Islam is not the problem, but a government steered by a religion with nuclear weapons is the problem. And then I guess in an attempt to look less Islamophobic, this same professor would say, And by that, I mean, I would never want Vatican City to have a nuke. The Pope should not have nuclear warheads, which I thought was a fair argument. You know, the Pope is like specialized in other things, I imagine. Uh, But that that's their argument. Like, but what it's missing is that there is a note of imperialism, right? When we are saying when a nuclear powered country that, by the way, is the only country to deploy nuclear weapons in the field of war. Knowing that a country still considers itself like the moral, as you said, bellwether, it's it's got some questions. You know, there's some holes to poke there because I'm not sure you can square some of the imperialistic actions that the country's taken over the past centuries with that kind of that kind of belief. You know what I mean? That that um, what is it called sometimes American exceptionalism? I don't know. Yeah. Manifest destiny. (laughs) I mean, that's the other way. Well, I mean, I just think those things are kind of related, right? This idea of striving for this, like, you know, let's take it as far as we can possibly go, you know, and that's sort of, uh, one could argue the seeds of megalomania uh, and uh, a kind of psychosis of never being satisfied. It's, it's a question uh, that we don't have the answer for. And a lot of people don't have the answer right now either. Now, sure, there's a clear argument to be made. I think that uh, there are some countries that probably shouldn't have nuclear weapons. But then there's also the argument to be made that asks, should any country have a nuclear weapon? We can't close the door on this one. You know what I mean? The radioactive horses have left the barn. Nuclear weapons are going to be a reality now. And with that comes this kind of black market. AQ Khan, through this conspiracy, proved that uh, with enough motivation and know-how, you can't really stop other countries from learning about this stuff. So 
before we end, uh, we should we should give you an update on Khan today. Like like we said earlier, he is alive. Uh, he is in his mid eighties. He's living in Pakistan still. Uh, he is not in jail. He's in good terms with the government. He's super popular, actually, domestically with the conservative sides. It's crazy, man. I just had to add, you know, we, we I talked briefly about how he sort of embraced this demigod status. Um, and he did it in the most open manner possible. He didn't act like a criminal. He acted like a king. Um, and he, you know, would... Uh, speak publicly and do, you know, seminars and talk about everything from, you know, science to history, pontificate on things like poetry. He was a huge fan of of poetry, apparently. Again, this is uh, from this Atlantic article, The Wrath of Khan. Um, he, he did a really interesting thing. Um, we, we talked about kind of the, the idea of political corruption. And, and there's no secret that Pakistan has a very rife a history of, of political corruption. And it's a little too complex to go into right here, but apparently they have a lot of, I guess you could call them civilian governments, these kind of little mini governments throughout in different kind of, for lack of a better term, townships or areas or, or villages or whatever. And there's a lot of palm greasing that goes on. And understandably, a lot of people of power get away with a lot of stuff pretty openly, right? And the thing that Khan did was he built a weekend house that illegally drained into the drinking water of Rawalpindi, which is um, the capital of the Rawalpindi division. Again, like the the townships and principalities and the idea of the regions in uh, Pakistan are not fully uh, known to me. I don't have a good grasp of it, but uh, a, a pretty prominent place. Uh, it's in the Punjab area of Pakistan. Um, and he built this lake illegally draining into like waste into Rawalpindi's water supply. Um, he did it as a flex saying, look at me, look how much power I have. I can do this and no one's going to stop me. And you'd think that people living there would have a problem with that and be like, yo, you thought we thought you were our guy. Why are you pooping in our drinking water? But it turns out they loved him for it and thought it was an awesome flex and respected the balls that he it took him to do that. There's also some editorializing in that Atlantic article. Oh, I don't uh, disagree. They, they, they consider him when they're talking about that the, this house in particular, they do one of those things where they try to slip in character Character notes based on descriptions of physical appearance. They call him like a soft banquet fed man or something like that. <laughs> okay. I love that. It felt a little, little tilting the scales, but Wrath of Khan and the other one we mentioned, The Point of No Return, are really good articles for further insights. I would say Wrath of Khan has a lot of, um, a lot, a lot more biographical details. Mm -hmm. It feels very story-like. Like it really does yeah. kind of give you a movie cinematic kind of view of this guy's life, which is larger than life, you know? Right, right. And uh, this, this maybe gives us something we can end on here. So he thought it is crucial to point out that he did feel – he did feel like he was doing the right thing. Like at least in the beginning, he was on kind of this one-man mission to save Pakistan from India because he thought India wanted pa Pakistan's demise. Uh, and along the way, he had some mission creep because selling nukes to – selling nuclear capabilities to North Korea doesn't really help you protect yourself from India unless you just need the cash. And that would have to be a lot of cash. 
But this is the one thing that got got me. Uh, people said he was abrasive, maybe single-minded. Some people said he was a little megalomaniacal. But was he right about Pakistan? I think he was. I think they would have been destroyed. You think so? I'd say that, that seems to be uh, somewhat of a consensus. Uh, at least of people, you know, they're familiar with this, these conflicts that, you know, they, they, they likely would have tried to snuff them out, absorb them or just, you know, annihilate them. Or subjugate them into a vassal state or, or mm-hmm. something like that. It's a, I mean, it's a complex question. We want to hear from you. Uh, will the nu- illegal nuclear trade ever be stopped? Will it continue the way that the red market organ trade continues apace in the modern day? Let us know. We try to be easy to find online. Yep, you can definitely find us online. We are Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook and Twitter, and we're Conspiracy Stuff Show on uh, Instagram. Um, And you can also give us a call at 1-833-STDWITK to leave a voicemail that could end up on one of our weekly listener mail episodes. Just give us your name or what to call you and make sure you let us know if it's okay to use it. Uh, And you might might hear yourself. While you're at it, why not leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts? Yes, every every single review helps uh, immensely. Enjoy them with that phone number one eight three three S T D W Y T K. It's uh, going to give you three minutes. Those are your three minutes. Um, do let us know, as we always say, uh, if you have a kick ass nickname, and let us know what's on your mind, uh, and let us know if we can use your story and or voice on air. If you are dealing with something that is not a three-minute story, never, ever censor yourself. Uh, You can write to us directly with the full shebang at our good old-fashioned email address where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.
Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.